Well, again, we're moving our way through the book of Acts, and you heard Mark give you chapter 26. Let me go ahead back and read the back end of 25, because that's part of the text we did not read last week. I'll go ahead and read it on page 993, verses 13 and following. You'll remember, just to set the context, that Paul has been turned over to Felix. Felix, who's kind of a rapscallion, uh, that, that's the word most kids are using these days. That's why I try and use a word like rapscallion. Uh, I don't know what's the better word. He's a scoundrel. Um, uh, and so he thinks that Paul's going to give him a bribe. Paul does not give him a bribe. Paul's sharing the gospel with him. Felix uh, doesn't want to hear it and, and drives Paul away. Felix is replaced by Festus. And Festus is hearing this. You'll remember Festus says, all right, well, I think I'll take you down to Jerusalem. We'll have the trial there. Paul then appeals to Caesar, and Festus says, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar, you will go. So that's how things were going. You'll remember that the flight to Jerusalem was probably going to be pretty harried because the assassins were laying in wait again for him and hoping that he would be brought to Jerusalem so they could ambush him and finally kill him. And hence Paul, I think, intuiting that, appealed to Caesar and, uh, and was going to be sent to Rome. So that's where we last left off. And then you heard Mark with, with Festus bringing Paul before Agrippa, but there's a little bit of a gap there. So let me go ahead and read it, and then we'll jump in today. This is uh, verse 13 of, of Acts 25. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accuser stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things that I, as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be, uh, to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar." Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself tomorrow, he said. You shall, you shall hear him. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come from, uh, with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. And then we have the text that Mark read today. So Festus doesn't know what to do with this guy, Paul, because he thought, okay, I'm going to be hearing some 
he's some criminal, he broke some laws, but when you come to me, you're bringing some religious matter, some, you know, Festus is a Roman, he doesn't know what's going on, but there's this guy named Jesus whom uh, he's died, the Romans crucified him, but, you, but Paul's saying he's alive, and, and this does not seem to be a matter for Rome. <laughs> so, so he says, it was my thought to take him to Jerusalem, but then Paul, uh, Paul said he wanted to go to Caesar, so I've got to send him to Caesar, but I'm going to look like a moron, because I'm sending this guy to judgment, and when he gets there, they're going to say, great, what's he here for? And Festus is going to say, not sure. And then Caesar's going to say, you know what? You're sending me cases. You have no idea what you're doing, you know, and then I'm going to be in trouble. So he brings him to King Agrippa, to Herod Agrippa, right? The king of the Jews, if you will, who's sort of a go-between, right? He's a local leader that the Romans empower to kind of help keep the peace. But Festus comes to Agrippa and says, I, I kind of need your help here. Would you hear this case, since I'm not, I can't take him to Jerusalem, would you, would you talk to him or hear him and then give me a sense of what's going on so that I can write something up and then send it to, send it to Caesar? And, and Agrippa says, yeah, well, I'd like to hear him. Now, now, Festus is the judge, and that's why he said he wanted to give him a hearing and so forth and make a discernment, but he can't. He can't even make a discernment. So Agrippa says, well, I'd like to hear him. So could you bring him in? And he is brought in. And the chapter 26, the bulk of the text here, is Paul now on trial before Agrippa in the presence of Festus, in the presence of his accusers, in the presence of Rome. Before all, he's on trial and kind of making his case. And Paul sees this as he has done in the past, as a real opportunity to have a platform from which he can preach Christ. At the end of this text, you may note that Paul says, there's really only one thing I desire. And if it were me, the one thing I would desire is that you clear me from this and let me out of these chains so I can get back to doing what I'm doing. But Paul says, the one thing I desire is that you would all come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't mention anything, but I don't want you to be in chains. He says, I wish you would be just like me, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, but without these chains. Paul's heart here, we know, we were humbled by it, as we talked about last week in Sunday school. We're humbled by the fact that Paul is driven here, even in this time of his own peril. He's got assassins wanting to kill him. He's got this crowd crying out like they did with Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. But here they're just calling on Rome to execute him, execute him, execute him, right? Very Christ-like, as we've talked about over the past couple weeks, how there's all these little echoes. It's not a reduplication, but echoes of Christ turned over by the Jews to the Romans, asking for his execution, and the Roman leaders going, we wash our hands of this, right? We don't, we don't see anything with which the man can be condemned, or by which the man can be condemned. Very similar. But Paul, while all the clamoring of the nations, while, as the psalmist says, the billows roll over him, and the, the tumultuous waters roar, Paul is calm. Paul stays on task. Paul proclaims the gospel. In fact, you will remember that at the beginning of chapter 26, it begins with odd words as Paul begins to speak to Agrippa. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, stretching out his hand like quieting the crowds. Like Paul's not just, okay, listen, hey, Agrippa, good. I'm glad I get to tell you this. Hey, listen, I'm being falsely accused here. I didn't, you know, defile the temple. No, 
Agrippa says, you can speak for yourself. And Paul kind of goes, like, okay, I, good, let me speak. And then he says this, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all these things of which I'm accused. And we know that, remember, going back, the accusation that was brought against him is this man defiled the temple. But Paul has taken it right to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am on trial for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am on trial for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul cuts through all the clamor. Paul cuts through all the silly accusations. We even talked about them in our Sunday school. Think about all the things the world throws against the church. Oh, you're homophobic. Oh, you hate people. Oh, you believe this. Oh, you're that. Imagine if we were Paul and says, I can understand why you're all upset at me. You're upset at me because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they're thinking, no, no, we, we think you're a homophobe. And I get it. I get it. I understand how the resurrection can make people very upset. You know, <laughs> Paul just, Paul keeps bringing it back here. At the end of the day, what's bothering you is that I claim that Jesus is Messiah, that you crucified the Messiah, and that he was raised from the dead. At the end of the day, that's why, why I am on trial. And so once again, he gets the chance with King Agrippa to answer his accusations, but he never goes to the defiling of the temple. He never goes back to the original things. He goes to his story and to what he's been charged to do, and he goes back to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he's happy to do it. Even though he's just been in prison, he's here in chains, he's going to be sent to Caesar. I think he's happy in part because it's the fulfillment of the prophecy that was originally given to him. Back in Acts chapter 9, when he was originally called and, and, and Ananias comes and speaks to him, he tells him, you will prophesy before kings and governors, before Jews and Gentiles. And Paul's watching it work out right in his face. It's not the way he would have written it. <laughs> you, you might want would have wanted other ways to testify in front of kings, but it's in chains. And if it's in chains, it is what it is. But Paul, the prophecy unto Paul is being fulfilled. He is getting the chance to prophesy to Jew and to Gentile and to kings and governors. He has testified before Lysias, the Roman commander of the garrison down there. He has testified before Felix. He's testified before Festus. Now he's getting to testify before Agrippa. And he's being told, you're going to get to testify before Caesar. Probably not Caesar himself. But before the big, you're going, you're going on the main stage. You're going to get to go to Rome. And he's seeing this fulfilled. And this excites Paul. Because for Paul, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And so even this occasion, though it's daunting, Paul says, I'm happy I get to do what I'm doing now. Now, I've entitled the sermon, The Gospel on Trial. But it is, it is, Paul, as the messenger of the gospel, is on trial. It's being questioned by the Jews and now here by the Gentiles, though they don't quite understand it, like with Jesus, the Jews knew what they were doing. Pontius Pilate was trying to get his mind around it. What exactly is going on here? He's probing and asking questions and actually entering into interesting philosophical questions with Jesus. Pontius Pilate is trying to get his mind around it. And frankly, Pontius Pilate was less offended by Jesus than the Jews were offended by Jesus. And so also with Paul, the gospel is on trial as Paul is the agent of the gospel. But we might ask, in, if we could hear Mark read it again, we might ask, but who's on trial here? Is it the gospel that's on trial? Yes. Most obviously, Paul is on trial. 
and in him the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is on trial. But I think if we read the text with discerning eyes, we'll find that more than just Paul is on trial in this text. Now, first of all, of course, Paul is on trial. As human beings, it's our nature, as C.S. Lewis said, to put God in the dock, right? To raise our fists against him. God is on trial. Think about how often we either hear from our friends and neighbors or how often we ourselves feel frustration with the providence of God. The way he in his wisdom, in his righteousness, in his sovereignty chooses to do things. Not the way we would do it. And we oftentimes, like the psalmist or the prophets, maybe Habakkuk himself, who says, you know what? Habakkuk actually puts God in the dock. He says, I'm going to ask you a few questions. Very bold, very brazen, very daring. But the psalmist sometimes, my God, my God, why? It's our nature to want to put God and his providence, his purposes, his plans in the dock. And this is what the Jews are doing. At the end of the day, Paul is proclaiming in this text what the Lord God has done. Paul says, I am on trial. This is fascinating. Linking into what we looked at last week. Paul says, I am on trial for teaching and believing that the prophets that they believe in, I believe in, and as he's going to say later, Agrippa, I know you believe in, that the prophecy of those prophets has been fulfilled in our presence. And for this, for God's fulfillment, I am being judged. This is down in verse 8. And now, as he speaks to Agrippa, and now I stand and am in, and, and judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Like, are you reading the same Old Testament I'm reading? Why is this a problem? At the end of the day, the way God has fulfilled the prophecies is not the way they want them fulfilled. That's what it gets down to. God fulfills the prophecies, but it's not the way they want them fulfilled. We like it the old way. We like it our way. We like it in the way where we have our neat little package of religiosity. And as long as we do these things, we're okay. Where we have power invested in us and you're coming and messing with the whole system. We don't like it the way you're saying God has done it. So we put God in the dock. We put the gospel on trial. It's foolishness to the Gentile. And it is an offense to the Jew. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1. It's a stumbling stone of offense. They don't want it. And so when God becomes man, they and we crucify him. We put him in the dock. We judge him as guilty for not doing it our way. We will be lords. As I said before, you'll remember when we are going through, I can't remember what book, maybe Ezekiel, I can't remember. Don't shake and shiver. <laughs> when we were going through Ezekiel, to remind ourselves that Golgotha and the shoutings and the ravings 
at the trial of Jesus is the little bacteria or, or, or virus put in the Petri dish in the Garden of Eden when Adam sins, when Adam reaches for the fruit, when Adam caves and listens to Satan, and all of humanity is plunged into hell, to darkness, to curse, because of that one simple act, we say, wow, that looks like an overjudgment. God's going to send everyone to hell because Adam ate fruit? Like, it doesn't seem proportional. But as I said, it's like swabbing one of my children's throats to get a culture for strep. You can't see it. You're, you wonder if it's there. You swab the back of the throat. You, you put that in a Petri dish. You put it in the right conditions, and you let that grow to see what comes out. And then after a week or whatever it is, I don't know, you, know, you let it grow, and then you look at it under the microscope, and you're like, the thing is grown and it's gross when you look at it under the microscope. Well, imagine the swabbing of humanity's heart there at Eden with the picking of the fruit and you put that sin in a petri dish. It doesn't look that bad. It looks like hell is an overjudgment on this. But then you put it in the right conditions in Israel. You add the law, a nice warm light, so that it can grow under those conditions. Paul says in Romans 5, the law came that sin might abound. So you let the law just be that, the little incubator for this virus and this culture. And when it grows to its full ugliness, do you know what it looks like? Do you know what the sin of Adam in the garden really was? You couldn't maybe see it so clearly there. But if you want to know what it was, you look at it at its full maturity. And its full maturity is at Golgotha. And at that time, it's human beings raging against their God in the flesh and begging Pontius Pilate to crucify him, kill him, get rid of him. We want it our way. That's the sin when we see it in its full maturity. And here are the echoes of that now with Paul. The gospel is on trial. Paul is on trial. God is on trial. Not just in this moment, but he's on trial today. As our culture turns hostile toward the gospel, as it turns hostile toward the church, and maybe to you personally, be prepared for this. For God is still in the dock. And he will be until the one day when he finally comes and clears the courtroom once and for all. But until then, be prepared. Because if you're going to bear his name, you will be in the dock. So who's on trial here? Well, of course, God is. The gospel is. Paul is. But that's not all that's on trial here. In some sense, the people are on trial. Paul gets this opportunity to speak, and he, in some sense, condemns them. The condemnation. He becomes the prosecutor, in some sense, by pointing back their injustice by telling his own story. Paul gives his testimony. You know me. These people know me. I was a committed Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, zealous even to the persecution of the church. But then this happened to me, and I have been obedient to the calling that the Lord has given to me. But notice what he says in his testimony about himself. Notice 
the little, this is not, I don't think Paul's doing this to give a dig. He's speaking honestly. But he elaborates on what the Lord said to him. We didn't get this in that. This is, this is the fourth time now we're hearing this story. And Paul keeps at we getting in a little more and more detail. But notice what he says down in verse 18 about the mission that the Lord had given to him. Well, I'll go back to verse 16. But rise, stand on your feet. This is the Lord speaking, Paul accounting what the Lord said to him. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people. So this, think about the prophecy he's giving right now, right? In some sense, Paul knows the verdict. The word of the Lord has come in. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes. Now listen, this is, I'm delivering you from the Jews and the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them and this is what you're going to do. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, now Paul's telling this to Agrippa, but he's talking about them, Jew and Gentile. And notice the things that he's saying about them. In some sense, as they're listening to Paul, the Lord is putting them on trial. They are guilty, one, for what they're doing to Paul. But there is a deeper guilt here. Notice how they are described by Paul, by the Lord Jesus, by the way, and now accounted by Paul to King Agrippa. To open their eyes, they are blind. They're blind. To turn them from darkness, they are living in darkness. From the power of Satan, they are under the power of Satan and to bring them to God, that they might receive forgiveness of their sins, their sinners, and to receive an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul's words here, as Paul's preaching, he's not just giving an account, but he's also describing the very people who are accusing him. And he's describing all of us, Jew and Gentile. We are all described this way. We have to, Paul's audience will have to reckon not just with Paul, but they're going to have to reckon with God and reckon with who they are. So the people are on trial. But then not only the people, but also King Agrippa himself. Paul speaks this to Agrippa. And then in telling the story to Agrippa, he then turns to him and says, Hey, Agrippa. Now, we'll, we'll get to Festus's response. But down in verse 27... Paul now, think about this. Paul's on trial. Paul's standing there in chains. Here's the king, the king of the Jews, right? Hearing about the king of the Jews. Right? Paul's talking about the risen king now, the Lord Jesus Christ, the king that this guy's great-grandfather wanted to execute because he claimed, remember when the, the wise men come and say, hey, can you tell me where to find the king of the Jews? And they're asking the king, of, they're asking Herod, the small k king of the Jews, we heard the king of the Jews was just born. We'd love to go see him. Herod's like, that's it. Kill all the children. And here's Paul in his presence talking about the king of the Jews, the risen king. 
And in verse 27, the man on trial turns to the king and says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe this stuff. I know you believe. You're on trial today, King Agrippa. There's a decision you need to make, but it's not about my guilt or innocence. There's a decision that you need to make today about how you understand who Jesus is. King Agrippa's on trial. Everybody's on trial in this story. Now, there are three responses that we get in this story. And I relate them in my mind to C.S. Lewis's Lunatic Liar Lord triad. A helpful, a helpful apologetic little tool when you're dealing with people about Jesus. And as C.S. Lewis had to deal with out in England at Oxford and Cambridge was the idea that Jesus is a respectable teacher, but he's certainly not God. That's ridiculous. We don't believe in that anymore, but he is a respectable teacher like Muhammad or Gandhi or you know, Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, you know, he's one of these great figures of wisdom. And Lewis just slapped that down and said, let me tell you the one thing you cannot say about Jesus is that he's merely a respectable teacher because he claimed to be God. And a teacher who claims to be God and is not is not a respectable teacher. Think about the things Jesus said. You must pick up your cross and follow me. You must lose your life for me. If you value mother or father more than me, you're not worthy of me. If, you're not, if you don't hate your life in relation to me, you're not worthy of me. What kind of good teacher says this? This is the point Lewis is making. It's a cop-out to say he's a good teacher. It means you don't want to take him at face value. You don't really want to deal with him. So you come up with some sham. Oh, well, he's a good teacher, but we can't, you know, obviously something. We're not going to say this or that. And Lewis said you only get three options. One, he's a lunatic who thought he was God, but clearly he wasn't, but then he's not a good teacher. Right? We don't follow, give our, devote our lives to a lunatic if we believe he, he's a lunatic. Or he's a liar. He knew he wasn't God, but he tried to deceive everybody. But somebody who does that's not a good teacher. Or he is what he said he was. In which case, he's the best teacher. So if you want him as a good teacher, you've got to take him as Lord. Now, we get these three responses here. Festus calls him a lunatic. Paul's teaching here, and Festus just, remember, this is just so Agrippa can hear him, and then Agrippa can say, all right, Festus, let me tell you, here's what you write to Caesar. I, okay, I'm making sense of this. Here, write this down. But Festus can't control himself. So verse 24, now, as he thus made his defense, Festus blurts out with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning has made you mad. You're a lunatic. You seem like such an educated man, but all your learning has made you a lunatic. This message is ridiculous. It's lunacy. Be prepared for that. that that's... <laughs> That's one response to the gospel. Lewis says, okay, it's fair at least. It's fair. It's not correct. Notice Paul's response. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. I want to encourage you in your apologetic defense when you stand for the gospel Remember, you speak the words of truth and reason. Paul is not frazzled by this ridiculous accusation. Paul says, I'm sorry. I am not speaking the words of a madman. 
I'm telling you a story that happened, and I'm giving you the evidence for it, and I'm speaking with rationality, rationality and cogency. And Paul's very story, the same story that Paul uses, is a story that you can use. I've talked about this before in the affirmation of the truth of the gospel. Anybody who does not believe in Christianity must come to grips with what the heck happened to the Apostle Paul. How does a guy like Saul become Paul? You can call him a lunatic. He just snapped and went mad. But go read his writings, listen to his words, and you tell me if he sounds like a lunatic or not. Paul says, the words I speak are reasoned and true. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. Notice how he puts Agrippa back as a witness now. The king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. Agrippa knows he's been around this area. You've brought him in because he's an expert on all things Jewish. Well, if he's an expert on all things Jewish, then he knows full well what happened because this did not happen in a corner. Here's your apologetic response. Our words are true. They are reasoned. They are rational. They make sense. They're supernatural, but they are reasonable. And this stuff happened in public, not in secret. So one response is you're a lunatic. The other response is you're a liar. And that essentially we get from Agrippa. Now, the New King James says something very nice here. It says, it says, Paul, you've almost convinced me to become a Christian. I don't think that's probably the best translation of it. The best translation of it is probably, do you expect to convert me in such a short time? Is that what you're after here? Not going to happen. Right? You're wrong, Paul. You're wrong. I will not concede. And of course, many may say that. Many say, no, I will not affirm it. That's not true. That's a lie. It's either lunacy or it's a lie. But of course, the highlight of the text is the response of the Apostle Paul. And notice what Paul calls Jesus. He's knocked to the ground. Saul, Saul, he hears the voice. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul, who will become Paul, responds, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Paul testifies his testimony before Agrippa, before Festus, before these in darkness, bound by Satan, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul can testify to having met him. And Paul has worked through in a cogent way the truth of how what Jesus is is the fulfillment of everything they have longed hoped for. How he is the conclusion and the fulfillment, the full flower of the seed that was the gospel given in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fullness of that. And boy, he makes a cogent argument. And if you don't get it all here, then go read any of his books. Praise God, we have so much of Paul's cogent writing where he lays out, go read Romans and tell me we're dealing with a lunatic. Go read Romans and tell me we're dealing with a liar or Read Philippians chapter 3 where he tells his story and says, I, I was so invested. Everything I had was invested in my Jewishness and in my Pharisaism. But when I met Christ, it all became rubbish to me. And Jesus Christ became of such surpassing value 
that I was willing to lose all things. Go ahead, call him a lunatic. Call him a lunatic or a liar as he's willing to die in order to give up all things and willing to be in chains for the sake of the gospel. Call him a liar if you will, but you'll have a hard time making the case. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. For Paul and for us, brothers and sisters, he's the Lord of all. And may we be inspired by Paul. Humble, of course. I'm sure we'll have time in Sunday school to be humbled again. But may we be inspired by Paul, who took every opportunity to preach the gospel. Yes, the gospel is on trial, but remember this. Remember this. Ultimately, at the end of the day, Christ cannot be defeated. Paul was told, you'll remember, I won't make this point, we talk more about this in Sunday school. But it's interesting, Paul adds one little statement by the Lord Jesus in his telling of the story again this time. And he says, Saul, Saul, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Why do you try to kick against the goads? Why are you trying to resist the irresistible? You will not win. And Paul caves, he taps out. Brothers and sisters, you serve a Lord Jesus Christ who cannot and will not lose. Our friends, our neighbors, our culture kicks against the goads. They can throw anything they want against the wall of the Christian faith to see if it will stick, to see if it can defame, to see if it can tear down, to see if it can resist the spread of the gospel. But they kick against the goads and they cannot and they will not win. And you serve this Lord Jesus Christ who could take a rat like Paul, Saul, this hater, this persecutor of the church, the one voting against people so that they're executed and make him into the apostle of apostles. Oh, what can he do with America? What can he do with the West? What can he do with Islam? What can he do with this fallen and broken world? Oh, he can do unimaginable things and will. All they can do is kick against the ghost, but they cannot and will not prevail. Be encouraged by that. And be encouraged then to stand and to speak for him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we are on the side of Christ by your grace. We too were once those who kicked against the goads, but you by your mercy have humbled us, flattened us, blinded us, that you might give us sight. Oh, Father, make us bold then to proclaim, knowing that Christ will not lose, and therefore we in him cannot lose. Father, help us to stand and to speak and to proclaim, expecting the responses of lunacy, respect, uh, expecting the responses of liar. But Father, may we continue to present Christ as Lord in a cogent, reasoned, truthful way. Oh, Lord, hasten the day when you bring other Saul's of this world to become Paul's. Do it, we pray, and thank you for using us in the process. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.